This Institute of Ideas podcast is called Can America Be Great Again? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. So I'll start again. Welcome, everybody, to this opening session of the Battle of Ideas. Um, We're going to be spending the next 90 minutes discussing um, whether America can be great again. And it it is a riff on uh, Trump's campaign slogan, but we're going to use that as a springboard to discuss why the issues of American greatness, American exceptionalism, American national identity. Um, Historically, America has stood as an emblem um, or an upholder of the values of democracy, of freedom and of equality. And these have been values which have been very specifically embodied within the American nation and have be, and have acted as kind of an example, exemplar to the rest of the world. So my favourite expression of it is in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, I think it's many people's favourite expression of it, where Lincoln declared that um, in 1863 at Gettysburg that the founding fathers had, quote, brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men were created equal. And he ended that short speech with a determination that government of the people, by the people and for the people shall not perish from this earth. So um, he sets the United States up as a beacon of a Republican democracy to the rest of the world, a shining example for others to emulate. So they, these are specific and universal values, um, both in, in this kind of notion of American exceptionalism. But of course, Trump's campaign slogan ends with the word again, which suggests that they aren't, that America isn't great currently. It can become great again, that it's in decline, that America's, Americans seem to have lost um, faith in the political system and perhaps in the American dream. You know, is it still this beacon to the rest of the world? I read a very offhand description by John, by John Pilger um, this week where um, he describes the United States as a nation where toddlers shoot their mothers. Um, So what has gone wrong? Um, And we have a great lineup of speakers uh, today to discuss that and uh, shed some light on what is going wrong and whether America can be great again. Um, I'm going to introduce them now in the order in which they will speak. So Professor Sarah Churchill, to my right, will, uh, she will speak first. She's the Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and Professorial Fellow in American Literature at the School of Advanced Study, the University of London. She's a widely published and a regular contributor to both popular and academic journals. She has a book on that great American icon, Marilyn Monroe, and, um, and provides many insights into the American dream in her 2014 book, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, which I'm currently reading and enjoying very much. Our second speaker um, to my left is Dolan Cummings. Um, Dolan's a writer. He's an associate fellow of the Institute of Ideas and one of the organisers of the festival this weekend. He is co-founder of the Manifesto Club, which campaigns for freedom in everyday life. His first novel, uh, That Existential Leap, a crime story, will be published next spring. The third speaker will be Alex Dean, to uh, further to Dolan's left. He is the managing director 
um, of FTI Consulting, which is based in New York. He regularly comments on US politics and policy issues on Sky News and the BBC. He's a former chief of staff to David Cameron and campaign, campaign advisor to Australia's former uh, PM John Howard. He recently edited Big Brother Watch, The State of Civil Liberties in Modern Britain. Our fourth speaker will be Michael Goldfarb, to my right. Um, he is a journalist and historian, um, uh, has written and reported uh, for the BBC, The Guardian, um, amongst, well, The Washington Post, amongst others, New York Times, I think. Um, he's uh, reported for British and American news outlets from 20 countries on five uh, continents on conflicts and conflict resolution and culture. He most recently produced a BBC Radio 4 documentary on Trump and the politics of paranoia. I think that might need updating now. You've done some extra stuff. But. And uh, our final speaker, and welcome to you, uh, Dr Kwasi Karteng, who's Conservative uh, Member of Parliament for Spellthorne since 2010. He's also a trained historian um, and he's published three books in the last five years, um, including uh, Ghosts of Empire, War and Gold and Thatcher's Trial. So um, I extend a welcome to all of our speakers and invite Sarah to kick off the discussion. So, um, well, as, uh, as you've already heard, the, the question um, that we've been asked to address, uh, can, uh, can America be great again or can we make America great again, is... Um, a premise that has been uh, put forth by Donald Trump. Um, and it is unsurprising that on that basis alone, but for lots of other reasons, I reject the premise entirely. Um, it is, in fact, and I say this with all respect um, to the organizers, because as we have heard, it is Donald Trump's question. It is a profoundly stupid question. Um, and it's a stupid question, not least. It, it's, a, it's a deliberately stupid question. It's an obfuscating question. It is a question that is designed to deflect attention away from specifics and get us into nebulous conversations and subjective conversations about what greatness might be and what greatness might look like. And if you keep it as vague as great, then everybody can have their own definition of great, and it can be a Rorschach test, and we can all just kind of fight about what we... Th I mean, not really fight about it, because you don't, don't ever get into it. So there are literally people supporting Trump who think that a definition of American greatness would be to return to the antebellum era of slavery, for heaven's sake. I mean, that's what they actually think greatness would look like. So it is, it is a deliberately useless question. We need to ask much more specific questions about how we can restore civil processes in our country, about how we can restore, as, uh, as you rightly said, um, how we can restore faith in the justice system, how we can restore faith in the legal system, and the first thing that we need to do in order to restore faith in any of those systems, both at home and abroad, is to make sure that Donald Trump is resoundingly defeated and kept as far away from the White House as, as humanly possible. This has to be a mandate, um, not least because, of course, as we've all seen, and just recently in the last week or two, he's, but it's been accelerating, he's been doing it for months, he is determined to try to undermine the democratic process itself, to undermine the electoral process, to say that if he loses, the process must be rigged. Um, he couldn't possibly lose in a fair fight. He couldn't possibly be losing because everything that he says is pernicious, um, because Americans are rejecting it resoundingly. Um, and so we have to restore those kinds of very basic foundational tenets in, in the faith that certain kinds of processes are happening appropriately. And of course, as, as many of you will know, where the electoral process is rigged, it's actually rigged in the favor of people like Trump, not against him. 
Um, where there are problems in the democratic process in America, it's about denying the vote to African Americans, for example. And we may or may not get into some of the uh, details of that. So the, for me, the specifics of it are that one of the, there are several things that we need to do um, most urgently, and I was glad to hear Hillary Clinton at least start to address this um, in, of all places, the Al Smith speech uh, that she gave the, the, when they, the two of them did the roast the other night that I'm sure some of you have seen. And one of the, the, one of the few things she said that Donald Trump nodded to, it seems to be like the only thing that they agree on, um, possibly for different reasons, is that the campaign, the electoral process in America needs to be shorter. And that's obvious. Clearly, this two-year battle is brutal for the candidates, which presumably is why Donald Trump was nodding, but it's very bad for the country. It's, not, it's bad for the country not least because it costs way too much, and we know the, the degree to which money is involved here. Um, the, one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders got as far as he did in the process was because he kept absolutely hitting home the point that America needs campaign finance reform. One of the things that has not been said, in my view, enough about um, how, how and why Trump has gotten to the position that he's gotten to is that people have talked about the fact that, he, that because of his understanding of celebrity and his understanding of media, he didn't have to pay, he didn't have to raise the money that Clinton had to raise, he didn't have to pay for his advertising spots. And that's true, and that has helped him enormously. But what's left out of that is that in America, the, um, the, elect, the, the democratic process and the election cycle, it's not just that you have to pay for the spot, it's that the people who are running the media companies are making money off of that television because it's commercial television. When they say that Donald Trump is ratings gold, they mean it literally. They have been enriched by Donald Trump's undermining of the democratic process. And that is a very real problem. So until somebody actually, until America actually grasps the nettle of campaign finance reform, we are not going to be able to rein this stuff in. And you're going to continue to see candidates like Trump, I fear, because a lot of people have learned some lessons uh, from his successes here. It's one of, again, one of the reasons why he needs to be defeated resoundingly not least so that people, people don't conclude from this that what we need, that we, continue, we can continue to have dog whistle racism and that we continue to use misogyny and we can continue to use all of these things, but that we'll just have a more disciplined candidate uh, to do it, somebody who's more cynical, even more cynical than Donald Trump, but more disciplined and, and is a strategic rather than a tactical thinker who understands that, that, you can, that you can go all the way to the White House. So that needs to be completely defeated. And then, as I say, what needs to also happen is that there, we need to start having regulations on the way that the, uh, the political process is, uh, is organized, paid for, and the way that the campaigns are run. And that's the start. And then there are a lot of other things that America needs to do to fix itself. And, and I think that, you know, as I say, talking about greatness is a, is a red herring and a deliberate one at that. Thank you. That was Thanks. exactly five minutes. Probably. Yes, good. <laughs> okay, um, am I mic'd up? I'll assume that I'm hot and continue. Um, thinking about American greatness in global terms, I guess the, the obvious point of reference when was America great, would be the Second World War. That was America's intervention in the Second World War, after which it emerged as, as, as a world power um, uh, more powerful than the, 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 than the imperial powers um, that, that had um, been important hitherto. Um, but the thing about, you quickly go from the Second World War into the Cold War, and America is a great power in opposition to the Soviet Union, and, and although it certainly had lots of, lots of influences, it's also when America's greatness started to become a point of contention. Um, uh, people began to see it as a force for evil in the world. In fact, one person who explicitly used the word great when talking about America was the Ayatollah Khomeini, when he told, talked about the great Satan. 
Um, so can America be the great Satan again is obviously not the question that we're, we're asking. Um, of course, it's important not, on, not only in places like Iran where anti-Americanism became important. In America itself, anti-Americanism became an important strain of thought in, in that post-war period, particularly in, in the 60s and the, the Vietnam movement and so on. People began to doubt whether there was anything in um, the idea of America worth, worth defending. At the same time, though, America continues to this day to be the, 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 the destination from, for immigrants from all over the world. People want to go to America. They value the freedoms that they have there, the opportunities that they have there. So something is still going right, um, despite the, the current election. Um, so I think it's worth, worth asking, what is the, the American ideal, even if, it, if, if, if it's not living up to it? And in that context, I think it's important to remember that America was born in a revolution. Although it's seen as a, a, a country that represents conservative politics, it did arise out of a revolution. And there was a very interesting exchange on a television show in 1973 uh, between William Buckley, um, who hosted the show The Firing Line, and Huey Newton, the Black Panther leader. Um, he had him on to interview. But before Huey Newton would answer any questions, he said, I want to ask you a question. And he said to William Buckley, something that's a good question for any American conservative, in fact. He said, imagine it's uh, 1776, the height of the American Revolution. You're an American conservative. Whose side are you on? And, and Buckley said, well, he thinks probably George Washington, but he had to admit that he wasn't completely sure, that he'd be thinking, but might it be possible to reform our way out? He was a loyalist. He was a loyalist. Um, so he was saying, well, what, what, what is a conservative position on that? How do you do things differently? Um, because the, the, you know, the great revolutionary breach at the time was to say there are no longer British subjects. They identified themselves as citizens of something new. And I think... Um, the question is, what was that something new? Um, it wasn't a nation. It wasn't, a, 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 you know, these are people who, who, for some generations, have considered themselves Englishmen, but actually um, claiming to be something new. And what subsequently happened, whether intended or not, of course, was that many more migrants came, came into to, to the U.S., and it became something very different. Um, there's an interesting, um, much-quoted um, point by um, uh, John Adams, um, the second president, who said, our constitution... Um, was made only for moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, this is sometimes seen as a, a sort of a, a conservative point. Actually, I think it expresses a great belief in human nature um, because he's, he's not saying it has, it has to be an English people or even a Christian people. It may have been implicitly assuming a sort of, a sort of Christian culture, but what's happened subsequently is that America did bring in people who were not English, who were not Christian, but who nonetheless were able to um, become American citizens. There's, a, there's an openness in the idea of America, um, which even though it was resisted from, 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 in successive generations, I think is an important characteristic. There's a kind of gamble that anyone can become an American. Um, and that's a kind of gamble about human nature, I think. It, it's saying that if you're a moral person, a religious person, it, we, might, we might discuss those things differently. Basically, if you're willing to obey the law and be part uh, 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 of um, uh, America, you can do. So I think that, that that gamble kind of summed up in the theme song to Cheers when it says you want to go where people know people are all the same. That idea, fundamentally, yes, people have different um, languages, different backgrounds and so on, but they can come and be part of something. I think that is um, part of the essence of, 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 what, what, lots of what makes people want to go to America, to become American, without necessarily taking on a particular way of life which is very different from their own. It's basically saying you could, this is a place where human beings can live freely. And I think that, that's something which is still there, still worth defending. Obviously, it's very much um, uh, opposed by something like the idea of building a wall around the country. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it keeps, to, keeps drawing people in. And I think that, that notion of, of, of America as a beacon for, for migration is something not to, that shouldn't be forgotten. I do not accept for one moment the premise that America is not great right now. 
but I think I get to that conclusion by a, a different route. And I certainly don't feel the need to define myself against Donald Trump in order to reach that position. I think that I can um, look at the fundamentals of that country and that political environment and reach that conclusion without reference to the candidates who contest this election. And I look at those fundamentals in this way. America, always the first to aid in international disaster around the world, usually without thanks. America, always the perpetual guardian of Western democracy and freedoms, always without thanks. Here in the United Kingdom and on the continent, our practice is normally to bite the hand that freed us. There is a sneering, there is a an, uh, remarkable attitude uh, towards America, which uh, would be amusing if it weren't so upsetting, given the enormous sacrifices that generation after generation of American youth have made to safeguard many of the freedoms that we take for granted. And indeed on the continent, the peace dividend that countries like Germany and France have obtained, especially Germany, um, from being able to rebuild their economies after the Second World War without having meaningfully to defend themselves because that uh, shield was provided by America is one of the greatest gifts of the 20th and 21st centuries and goes entirely ignored. Much of the generations that undertook that great work are still with us. So I find the presumption that America isn't great uh, right now quite strange. Uh, now, of course, I can only concede that this is not a great time in the political cycle. I, I don't deny that. Uh, these are both, in my view, pitiful candidates. Uh, and to think uh, of the legacies that uh, they have inherited, to think uh, that the party of Truman has nominated Hillary Clinton, and to think that the party of Lincoln and Reagan has nominated Donald Trump. They're, they're plainly, in my view, and so I concede this point to the naysayers, they're clearly not worthy of the legacies of which, with their nominations, they are the inheritors. Um, but on the other hand, I look at the fundamentals of the system in which they exist and think that that system is far stronger than the moment that we choose to examine. In my business life, in, uh, both here and in the United States, when dealing with Americans, I find those basic attitudes of optimism, entrepreneurialism, openness uh, and positivity about the future all still present. All of those fundamentals are still there. Uh, and the systems and the values of that great country, I think, in political terms, are still there. They have weathered bad presidents before. They will weather a bad president again, whoever wins this election. We've had, and please don't think that they have a monopoly on bad leadership either, we've had terrible leadership in recent times in, in our country. Tony Blair, a pound shop televangelist on the make. <laughs> you know, the sulking Gordon Brown who suspected and schemed against the world just at the time when we need most to be open uh, to the world and positive uh, about it. So I, I don't think they've got a, um, a monopoly on bad leadership either. And yet, of course, we survived. And I say that just as we survived, the Republic will stand. And I, and I do have to question slightly part of the premise that America is in such a terrible state because it seems sometimes when people talk about it, they almost want it to be bad. They're almost willing uh, the environment to be bad without making it personal. I listen to Sarah's remarks and I wonder, who is it that wants to return to the antebellum era of slavery? Find a spokesman who wants to do that in any kind of <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaningful or, or political environment. And, okay, well, the, do you the, follow the, David too? Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, I see. So you're going for really mainstream modern politicians who are playing a meaningful role in, in you, society. You, did, you, did, you, did you like to qualify your you question, liked, Alex. You like to play them up. 
because it suits your political narrative. And bizarrely, sandwiched between two Americans... Wait till I speak before out, you, 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 it, you, yeah, you chose you to speak now in the middle of my remarks, so I'll rebut <laughs> you now. Um, you choose to talk your country down and you leave it to others to point out the basic qualities for which it stands. So I say uh, uh, this, and you can listen to Michael's nay saying now, but I, I say, ultimately, uh, in this question of greatness... Shakespeare was great, but I don't rely on that. Our language is great. I don't rely on that. America, Britain's greatest gift to the world. I rely on that. America is great right now. Thank you very much. Michael, yes. your turn. Uh, I don't need to be hot, Mike, but you, you might want to just lift it up. Okay. Um, actually... One of the problems with this format is that by the time you get to be the fourth speaker, you've recalibrated your prepared <laughs> remarks three times. And, and, and you suddenly say, I have nothing. Uh, what am I going to say now? But what, what I, I actually, in many ways, agree with Alex. And I think that, one, uh, and, and I also agree w with um, Sarah. I mean, the question that Donald Trump proposed is, of course, ridiculous but it has managed to consistently strike a chord in the United States and not among just the alt-right, as we've learned to call it, meaning David Duke and the knuckle-dragging the South will rise again types, who exist and exist in numbers. I've reported from the Deep South frequently over the last 20 years, particularly at political times, and they exist and you know, they don't comprise anything like a majority of the Republican Party, but they're a significant voice within it. The word greatness is what hangs us up, I think, in this conversation. What is great? There's an old... Um, perhaps you said... We, you know, I've been living here for 30 years, but when, when I was a kid, we used to have... There was a grace at table. God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food, right? So greatness implies goodness... But that's only one aspect of greatness. I don't think there's any doubt that America is great. I don't think that there's any doubt at all. Alex has elucidated some of the reasons. Who are you going to call when your country is falling apart? Ghostbusters? Vladimir Putin to drop some barrel bombs on you? No. You call for the United States. The failures of the Arab Spring are in part exacerbated by the failures of the American foreign policy establishment to follow through. But when the people of Egypt took to the streets of Tahrir Square and demanded that a dictator who had been propped up by the United States for 30 years go, it was a call from the White House that forced him out in the end. When the people of Libya rose up it was the United States' decisive action in providing the logistical help that the French and British governments were asking for that saved the people of Benghazi and led to the overthrow of Gaddafi. We don't live in imperial times. In another time, several thousand years ago, another republic became an empire partially out of sheer success. And for more than a century, Tom Holland is a friend of mine. I read his books religiously. For more than a century, 
Romans deluded themselves that they were still a republic when they had taken on the responsibilities of governing the entire known world, and they had become an empire. And this is what happened after World War II. America is great, it is indispensable, and even now, I mean, economically it's indispensable. You know, if America's growth dips much below 2.5%, you will feel the chill here, whether you're in the European Union or not. I should say we. I'm a British citizen now. Um, we will feel the chill. Everyone feels the chill. But we also have to understand in this electoral cycle, and for the last almost 30 years, America has become soul-sick for reasons that Sarah touched on, partially because the media is entirely commercial and it has to meet its quarterly targets. Donald Trump was a gift. But long before Donald Trump and long before the invention of the Internet, America was already being divided because there was money to be made in the phenomenon of conservative talk radio. And what was what's essentially an entertainment business has also become a news source. America has split. And I just and I know I'm going to run out of time, and I just want to put this out here now, that the problems that we face in the Anglo-American world, so close, conjoined, <clears throat> New York, London, um, going back to the duopoly of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, the problems that we face are problems related to the economy and related to the world of work, which haven't been discussed at all in this sure. presidential election cycle, weren't discussed in Brexit. And yet we know, in looking back at the, the vote to leave, a considerable amount of that vote wasn't from people who have long campaigned to leave the European Union, but from people who have long been excluded from the world of work and the economy. I've just come back from making a documentary, which will go out on Halloween, which is very appropriate, on Radio 4, about the unswayables, Trump's loyal army. They are not all working class. They are not all knuckle-dragging racists. They are a reasonable cross-section of the American polity. Small businessmen, executives, people who've been out of work for 30 years. The economy doesn't work for vast regions of the United States. Donald Trump is the response. He did not create this constituency any more than Bernie Sanders created his constituency. It was there, waiting to be tapped. America's soul sickness, I hope, will go away. American power, like Roman power, has many, many, many decades to run before we can say America is no longer great. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you very much. I've enjoyed all the uh, and apologies for being late, but I, didn't, I don't think I missed that much. And I've obviously heard all your 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 um, opening presentations. Um, no, I, I was here with you. I heard what you said. Um, I actually t take a slightly different line. I, I think there is something in what Donald Trump says. I mean, he's such a ridiculous character, and he's yet got so far that you have to acknowledge that there is so there must be something that he's saying that, if not true, rings true. And I think Michael um, mentioned the economic question. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that at the beginning, because um, what essentially uh, Trump seemed to me was that he was addressing two issues, which if you're working in a plant, in a factory uh, in the Midwest, um, you would be very concerned about. 
Now, I think he's a disgusting individual. I think he's a narcissist. I think he's a six-year-old. He even described himself as a first grader. His mentality hasn't moved on from that. Um, and I think he's a, a deeply flawed candidate. But he had a couple of messages that clearly were very powerful. And um, I think, actually, people respond to. And the coded sort of language, you know, make America great again, you can, it's, it's a great phrase because you can, you can make, make it mean whatever you want it to mean. You could go back to the antebellum South, as maybe one or two, a uh, few people do. I, I don't know how many, but probably a few people think that that's a good idea. <coughs> people will, I think, typically go back to the 40s and 50s. And America was huge in the 40s and 50s. In 45, it was 50% of global GDP. That's a huge amount. Um, you know, Coca-Cola, uh, Ford, these were world-beating brands. The, the American dream was something that people believed in in the 1950s. And there's a sense, a profound sense that the middle class um, are suffering. And, and you look at that in statistics. I mean, people haven't had a wage increase for 15 years, um, the middle classes. There's a sense that the 1%, the, the people who are the bankers, the big shots, the business people, are creaming all the, the surplus. Um, the fact that Bernie Sanders did as well as he did, a socialist, a man who claims to be a socialist, that has got to tell us something. You can't just pretend that, oh, America's always been great and it's never dipped and it's always the same. It's, I, I don't think that's right. I think we've got to be honest and say, look, there's something that isn't right. And Trump, you know, to be fair to him, identified these two things. He said, uh, illegal immigration, I'm going to build a wall, grotesque policy, but very clear what that means. I'm going to build a wall so that Mexicans aren't going to undercut your wages. And then I'm going to, I'm going to have a tariff war against China. I'm going to put a 45% tariff on Chinese goods coming into the country so that your plant isn't going to be shipped over to Guangdong province. And I think if you're a, 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 someone in the Midwest on about $35,000 a year, those are the two things you're, you're, you're most frightened about. You're afraid of someone undercutting your wages and you haven't had a wage increase for 15 years, and you're afraid of your plant going off to China. These are real fears. Now, I'm not saying that Trump is the man who is providing the answers to this, but he's addressing questions that, frankly, neither of the, the two main parties, and I was studying in, in Harvard in the 90s. I mean, I remember the 96 election. I go to America quite a lot, but I, and I followed all the elections since then. None of these parties said anything about these things. Um, and that's why... And Trump coming actually shed a whole light on, on American politics for the last quarter of a century, from my point of view. I never understood why the Republicans went on about social issues, like about guns, about abortion. Oh, God, I never understood that. But Trump actually explained it to me by mere virtue of his candidacy. The reason that they went on about social issues was that on the questions of the economy, they were exactly the same as the Democrats. There was no differentiation between a Clinton Democrat and a Bush Republican. They said exactly the same thing about, they had exactly the same idea about, um, about illegal immigration. They were very tolerant of that because it obviously helps people who, who want to make money from cheap labor. They were exactly the same on, on China, on trade. They never, they never, they always complained that China was, um, was, was uh, you know, was manipulating the currency. They didn't do anything about it. So, Trump is essentially a kind of Avenger figure, and, he's, and he's, he's really the price that the Americans are paying for having a system which was, had very little choice. And Bernie Sanders, um, from the left, uh, was exactly the same as well. He, he says trade deals aren't fair. And it's very interesting to see how, how Clinton has moved to the left.
particularly on, on, on trade. And I suspect she will be tough on illegal immigration as well. So to wrap up, I just think that, you know, we can be very complacent about how wonderful America is, but things certainly on the economy and the distribution effects of, of economic growth are, aren't, aren't right. The times are out of joint. And I'm afraid these monsters, uh, well, particularly the former Donald Trump, are a consequence of that. Thank you very much. That's uh, very useful. All of the contributions to kind of kick off our discussion. Um, you know, maybe it's that uh, America is now divided over the sense of whether it's in decline or not. You know, is it kind of, um, is it ringing similar bells to the, the, the debate over Brexit here that, um, that some see, you know, the haves kind of see everything as the globalisation as a really positive thing, that this is, um, this is something that's uh, progressive and going forward, and that those who are losing out from those uh, economic processes are, you know, see things in a very different way. And, you know, in response, maybe even think that the antebellum South might be a better place <laughs> to be, you know. Um, so um, just with that in mind, I, what I want to do is just go out to the audience and take... Uh, some questions and comments from you um, and then come back to the speakers for your responses. So um, if you would just indicate, um, we have some mics going around there if you'd like to speak. Okay, there's a, a lady there with her hand up. Um, hi, I don't know if you can hear me. Yep. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to talk about the actual like electoral system, like the campaign itself. Um, do you think that it's kind of overfunded i was reading stuff about like david and charles Koch, like the olin foundation stuff like that where um so like businesses are funding the republican side particularly because they want a really like libertarian economy um they're funding them with a lot of money like i've read um charles and david Koch are putting what like 89 billion pounds for this um campaign itself do you think that that is like a huge problem because it is like a lot of money funded for a particular side, partly because they want what like like lower regulation on um, oil companies, stuff like that. Do you think that's like a really big issue in terms of the campaign itself and like how equal it is and um, the camp? Yeah, just the electoral system. Thanks. Okay, I'll take a couple more. There's a lady here. Um. Okay, um, I think um, I do agree that in America, large groups of people are, um, have been left out, if you like, and I think Michael put it quite nicely in terms of, you know, a couple of you have said about how the middle classes are suffering, wages haven't gone up, um, and I guess you could uh, say, yes, there's a certain sense of soul sickness, or as Charles Murray, I think, put it, um, uh, there's a culture war going on, and it's not really very much even to do with the economy, because the economy has been bad before, and we perhaps didn't have the same situation as we are facing. Now, I don't for one minute believe Clinton or Trump are going to be able to resolve it. And Michael ended his soul sickness by saying he hoped it would go away. My question really is, how would you individually tackle that? Because at the end of the day, if large groups of people in your own country don't really believe in anything and feel completely isolated, um, something is wrong. Uh, you know, I don't for one minute uh, 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 disagree with people who, you know, that America has got a lot to offer. It's delays. I know lots of people who want to go there, live there. But ultimately, in America, there is a problem there. And I'd like to know what you think you would do. Question for Alex Dean. Don't you think US foreign policy, specifically in Iraq, just shows 
how degraded America has become. I'll give the example of Iraq. The ousting of Saddam Hussein has basically plunged the Middle East into chaos, um, destabilised nation-states, led to the rise of ISIS and caused massive problems. And you're there defending American interventions as some force for good in the world. Surely that is the best example that you can have where American intervention has just caused untold problems, an example of how degraded America's become. Okay, okay, I'll come back to you then. Okay. Get us through to 1130. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to go, Mark? Uh, sure. Let, let me try and take them in order. Um, because, and, and I'm sorry, but this will all be short because I could talk for an hour on yeah. each subject. Um, the, the problem of money is enormous, and it's not just in this presidential cycle. This has been actually for decades. Um, and I don't know how you get it out. I mean, the Supreme Court accelerated it with a recent decision a couple of years ago, which allowed, which ruled that corporations had the same status as individuals and could therefore, as a, an act of freedom of speech, give as much money as they like. And it's filtered. But um, this has just thrown more money into the situation. Corporations have always tried to influence. The nakedness of it, though, has changed. In 2009, I made a documentary for World Service about the passage of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and stood outside a committee room and watched as a lobbyist wearing several thousand dollars worth of, I must say, really poorly tailored clothing. <laughs> literally was calling into the committee room and telling the Republicans in Congress, Congress telling them, you know, what the line was from, I think he was, I, I was eavesdropping. He was with an insurance, you know, one of the big insur health insurers. What was going on? And that, that has to stop if we're going to have a functioning government. Um, the other question, soul sickness. Yeah, you know, it comes from within. Um, a f I've... Uh, a good friend of mine um, teaches sociology and journalism, which is an interesting double at the Columbia School of Journalism. And I was speaking with him when I was in the other week. He said, we have forgotten our citizenly duties. Another friend of mine from that first group flat after you graduate university, African-American woman from Harlem and the South Bronx, ended up living in the Deep South. How did that happen? Writes to me to say, People have forgotten how to be citizens. At some point, either courses in civic, civic duty, which we had when I was a kid, will come back into the curriculum, or then America will have real problems because we have forgotten our citizenly duty. We're a free country. Nobody tells us what to think. We have the choice to believe what we hear. And so long as people are willing to take the easy route and say, yeah, that agree I'm in the bubble there, that's for me. And the third question is much more complicated, sir. Um, I think you can't say 2003 Iraq. The short history of the brief era of liberal intervention began in 1992 with the surrounding of Sarajevo and the murder of European citizens by fascists. After several years of dithering, Eventually, the United States, using NATO as a vehicle, relieved the siege of Sarajevo and forced the end of that civil war. I think that the leaders at that time, here it was, John, well, in, by the end of the 90s, you had another confluence. You had Clinton and you had Blair. And they saw that power 
that is used to take the heel of violent people off the throats of a general population actually works. They used it in West Africa. And then we had a new president, and he was able to form a coalition with people who doubted him in the United States. Um, and we went into Iraq. And I spent years reporting the annual report of Amnesty International. Every year, 1992, 93, when I was NPR's London correspondent, every year Iraq was either the second or the first worst human rights violator. And I had, and, you know, I probably, I'd like to think of myself as an anarcho-libertarian, but, you know, (laughs) you would, most people, Alex certainly thinks of me as being on the left. And people on the left would would say, it's awful. Something has to be done about that Saddam Hussein. Look at what he does. He gasses the Kurds. He does this, he does that. And the flaw is from the afterwards. You had a decade of successful interventions that actually helped people. So you can't just say 2003 is the beginning of history. Okay? That, that, okay, I, do, I don't think we're, gonna, we're not going to have enough time for every speaker to answer every sure. question that's on. So, so, just... so really direct your, your points at questions you particularly want to answer. But I'd like to invite Sarah to um, respond to the one on electoral reform. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you. And absolutely. But I also I, I want to connect it also to the question about soul sickness, about how to fix it, because they're related. Um, and indeed, they're related to the questions of economics as well and to some of what uh, Quasi was saying. So I will make one remark, but it will tie up, um, I think, a lot of these points. The three words that I was using in most of what I was saying were exactly uh, what you're talking about, campaign, finance, reform. And it encompasses all of these issues. It encompasses lobbying. Um, it encompasses the Citizens United decision that Mike was talking about, um, which you know is, is what now is called dark money, right, that, they were, that they're bringing in dark money to sway um, the political process. Um, to the point of so so the um, the the sense that um, the political system is rigged on the side of money um, is as Mike says that's a, and and it goes to the same point about Iraq history didn't start in two thousand and three that didn't start in two thousand and three and to Quasi's point about the the cultural cultural Republicans, cultural conservatives versus um, economic conservatives. I mean, neoliberalism, to say that there's nothing to choose between Bush and Clinton is to say that they were neoliberals. Yeah. But but the cultural conservatism is much, I mean, that goes right back to 1620. That's theocratic. No, but, that's so, but no, but it's, but it's there and it's been, that strain yeah, has always been there. And so they're, so they're lifting that up. So the point about how do we fix it, it's exactly what Mike just said. It's that we have to stop thinking of ourselves as consumers and start thinking of ourselves as citizens again. And the idea that what, so can I just very briefly give a, a little um, bit of history that in my experience almost nobody knows, and it's really germane to this point. The phrase the American dream was first coined not in the 17th century, not in the 18th century, not in the 19th century. It was coined in 1931 in the Depression by an historian called James Truslow Adams. And he was doing it to talk about how America went wrong and why the crash happened and why they were finding themselves in a depression, which, of course, is an economic question, right? How did we go so wrong? And he coined the phrase American Dream to talk not about getting a White House and a picket fence and a car, but to talk about all the higher ideals that America had lost sight of in chasing crass materialism. And he wanted that phrase to talk about all the better angels of our nature, to use Lincoln's phrase, all the things we were supposed to be about instead of just chasing money. And a few years after that book became a bestseller and launched the phrase American Dream into the American conversation, he wrote a big uh, piece for the New York Times in which he said, the problem is, is that I fear that Americans are all going to become consumers. And if Americans all become consumers, we will lose the American Dream. 
And we have lost the American dream as he saw it to such an extent that we now think the American dream is about consumption. And he was using the phrase precisely to critique that idea, and we've turned it around. And so we have to address all of these things together and to start saying this is not just about wealth. This is not just about money. There are supposed to be things that matter to us more, which is to Alex's point about whether Americans believe that America is great. Of course we do, because we know that there are these higher ideals to which we aspire, but we also have to tell the truth about the fact that we are not achieving those ideals, and we are trying to achieve a more perfect union. How can we do better? We can only do better if we tell the truth about where we're failing. If we're thinking about the, the higher ideals of American democracy, one of, the, um, one of the things that struck me about Hillary Clinton's campaign, campaign uh, reform, is that um, when she was running against Obama, she talked a lot about reform of the electoral college system in order to democratise the system yeah. more, which, you know, democracy being one of those higher ideals. She's been remarkably silent about that this time around. <laughs> you know, what, what, why do you think this is? Well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, that is, um, it's constitutional. So, um, you know, in my view, going after a constitu you know, constitutional reform is, is, is a non-starter right now. I mean, one of the, one of the simple ways, though, of, of solving some of the problems that we face as well, and we've only been talking about the presidential uh, election, is that, of course, there's a down-ticket election happening as well. And the Republicans are now realizing that by having tried to ride the tiger of Trump, they're in a lot of trouble, and they may well lose the Senate and even the House, which would be extraordinary if that were to happen. So the only way that you're going to get any kind of serious reform is to have Congress on your side as the president. Otherwise, the, any serious legislation simply is not going to go through. Even with that kind of support, could you, could you actually amend the Constitution? Not with the country and the state that it's in. You're never going to get that kind of consensus. Um, and too many people are too head up about the Constitution in, in lots of ways already, particularly about the Second Amendment. So they, I think they would just go nuts if you tried to go after the Constitution in any way. It would just be a non-starter. Um, the other reason that she's not talking about it, of course, is because she, she is trying to make sure that if she loses the popular vote, that if it's the electoral colleges that are going uh, to carry her. Look, the, the electoral colleges were put in place precisely to make sure that, um, that popular votes, did, that it wasn't a referendum, that it wasn't um, a straightforward popular vote, that there were, uh, there were supposed to be. They, it was, and of course, it's an elitist system. It, it, I mean... Here's, a, here's a, a, a news break for you. Um, parts of the American Constitution are elitist. You know? The American Constitution says that black people are only three-fifths of a person. It is not a perfectly egalitarian document. I hate to be the one to break it to everybody. So, um, so the, um, but they also thought that the electoral colleges were going to be a way to deal with, they thought they wouldn't have political parties. So there are all kinds of reasons why that is in there. Um, and I think it's something that actually, by and large, over history over time, and, and this is one of the many points at which I do agree with Alex, that of course a country has dips. Um, it's not always going to be at its best, and this is a low point for a lot of reasons. I don't agree that, that Hillary Clinton is a completely unfit candidate. I think that is um, demonstrably untrue. But other than that, I agree we're at a low point in lots of ways. But we've survived low points before. We have survived lower points in many ways. We've survived not one but two civil wars, the American Civil War in the 19th century and the American Revolution, um, which, as has rightly already been said, was itself a civil war too. So we've survived actual wars against each other. We will um, survive this as well. And I don't think that we need to get rid of the electoral colleges in order to do it personally. Okay. So, Kwasi, you... Um implied or su suggested that there was something in what Trump was saying or the, that he Look, was speaking I mean, for somebody. The campaign so, finance question yeah. was obviously tilted because, because in your mind you probably think the Republicans are the, 
party of big business. But Clinton, actually, the whole point of Sanders' campaign was that Clinton was, in his view, a puppet of Wall Street. There's no doubt the Clintons were incredibly effective at getting campaign finance, getting big uh, ticket uh, endorsements from Goldman Sachs, from uh, corporates uh, as well. It's, it's, and, and that's the whole point of this cycle, is that people like Trump and Sanders are saying, you've got big money candidates who are in, in hock to big money donors. And the big money donors want cheap immigration and cheap labor. And they, and they want to, to be able to manufacture things in China for, for cheap costs. And it was really a very fascinating election where both, in both parties you had insurgent candidates who did very well. I mean, one of them won in the Republican side. Sanders was, was fairly close. I mean, nobody thought that he would get as far as he would. And these people were, were talking about exactly the kind of thing that you were saying with regard to campaign finance. And the reason why they, were, they got traction was because their argument was that these, these mainstream candidates aren't, aren't different from each other. Because so, the whole thing is, forgive me, but uh, it, the it, whole thing is, is, is driven by, by, by what you're talking about, by but, corporate money. But does this mean, then, that Trump is speaking for these higher ideals of the democratization? No, of what, but, but, what? but what I'm saying is that that question absolutely hits on the nail on the head. And the way it was framed, I thought, was, was slightly misleading, because the assumption was that the Republicans are the big money candidates and the Democrats aren't. But actually, the whole point of this whole cycle was that you had mainstream candidates... I mean, let's face it, if it hadn't been for Trump, we, would, we could have been looking at another Bush-Clinton fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Um, we were essentially having a rerun of the 1992 election, but with different family members. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, and, and, and that's where we were. And, 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 and you know, that's, the, that's one of the big issues of, 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 of American politics today. Yeah. So where do all these ideals go, That We were talking about democracy and American greatness. Well, what's happened to them, and, and can they be revived? I think, I mean, I wanted to just um, say one word about the foreign policy issue. It wasn't, and I agree with Michael and, to a lesser degree, Alex, you can't just start the clock at 2003 and say, you know, intervention was a disaster, because for 10 years before that, it was effective. But there is a sense, and I travel in the Middle East a lot, there is a sense that America is retreating from the region. Rightly or wrongly, there is a, a big sense, and, and, and again, Trump feeds into this, uh, that, that, that America isn't, isn't doing uh, its role. It's not doing its role as, as a policeman, effectively. I mean, Alex is, was wa waxing lyrical about America, but they're not effective. People mentioned Libya. Libya is one of the, has been one of the big issues that the Republicans have been pushing because they, they're blaming Clinton for, the, for the, the assassination of an American ambassador in Libya, Chris Stevens. I mean, it's, you know, th there's a sense that America isn't projecting its power effectively. Um, so that feeds into the whole make, make America great again narrative. And I don't think Trump is, a, is, is, is an idealist. I don't think he's trying to... But what he's doing, he's saying... This he, is the best British understatement I've ever heard <laughs> um, you know, What he's doing is he's saying, come on, guys, you remember when we actually used to do things and were powerful? And, and we're, not do, we're not there anymore, and I'm going to get you back there. And, and for rightly or wrongly, a lot of people in foreign affairs, in economics, uh, in, in, in self-confidence, if you like, a lot of Americans respond to that. And I think Sanders was the other side of the coin in that. What I'm trying to get at is whether he's tapping into a, a desire or a need, not just for consumerism or for um, any other kind of uh, lesser 
ideals, but for so amongst the population, for those higher ideals that America used to stand for of, of democracy, of um, liberty and freedom, and whether he, you know so. whether he can he may not himself embody. You know, is he just a populist? You know, or is he is he is he tapping into something in the population that kind of wants that um, and. Maybe Dodan can speak. I mean, just briefly on the, the foreign policy stuff, I think the, the Iraq war was almost unique, not just because it ended so badly, but because it was so idealistic. American foreign policy between the war and, and now has not typically been idealistic, really. It's often been very cynical. It's often been about supporting people who don't share American values. I mean, the Mujahideen being the most obvious example. But, you know, the stuff that happened in, in, in Latin America and South America, <laughs> in the name of anti-communism, which was, an, whether you agree with it or not, was an ideal, um, but lots of dark things were done, lots of things that, that people um, are, are, are ashamed of. And, you know, the situation in Syria is, 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 is what to look at post-Iraq. Um, the Syrian rebels... Did they call the U.S.? Did the U.S. not pick up the phone? They, I mean, they, they called Turkey and, and the Gulf states American allies, but not very much promoters of American values. And, you know, the disaster that happened in, in, in Syria, America was almost irrelevant as far as I can see um, to, 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 to what happened there. They talked about moderate rebels as if talking about them would make them exist when it didn't seem too much evidence that they did. They were kind of like a, a cipher for American idealism about the moderate rebels. And the same kind of naivety of, of, of the, the, the post-Iraq war thing, the idea that if you get rid of a tyranny, then something like American, social, American liberal democracy will grow up. Obviously, it doesn't work like that. But it's difficult to say, well, should America then just go in Syria, transform it into America? You actually can't do that. It's not a practical possibility. So these things are very difficult. But I think that there's, there's an odd oscillation between... Uh, uh, optimism and, and idealism and, 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 and much more cynical approach in foreign policy, which has not really been resolved and not really been discussed in uh, the, the election. It's not something that's talked about at all. I mean, just briefly on this, this idea of, of idealism domestically and the idea of, of, of an American dream, I think this idea of being citizens rather than um, consumers or, or uh, um, uh, anything like that is, is very much back to what John Adams was talking about when he says a liberal constitution is there for people who bring their own morality. The government doesn't make you good. You're good. You make the government good. And in a sense, there's always been quite a nice anti-political strain through American politics and saying it's not about the government. As Ronald Reagan famously said, the most frightening words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> um, so the idea that, they, that it's the government that's going to fix things. And what's interesting about the idea of moral renewal is on the, on the, on the left, there is a kind of moralistic take about, about business. But Sanders articulated very well the problem. He, he didn't, I don't think he came up with a solution. I mean, rather like Corbyn, it's just, well, what I said in 1983, it still goes. It doesn't really apply to the contemporary situation. And the American, the conservative, um, the right, they talk about moral renewal a lot. But for too many of them, it's come down to a kind of very narrow arithmetic about how many um, conservative justices you can get into the Supreme Court, how many unborn babies you can save from abortion. And that's how just people justified in voting for Trump. Because he says, well, he says he'll put the right people in, in, in the Supreme Court. So I don't think that moral rhetoric gets into public life. It becomes um, attached to these kind of very political issues around, you know, abortion and, and gay marriage, these kinds of things. That's, you know, I think the American conservative tradition has more to offer, as does the, the, as does the liberal tradition. But that's what we need to be talking about, and it's not going to happen at a, at a general election. I think whoever wins the election, that's not going to be what, what, what clinches it. Whatever the solution is, has to come from the people, the culture, not from the state and the politics. Thanks.
Um, so on the question about campaign finance, I think it's been largely answered, but I do make the point that not only um, was Clinton seen, as, the, as, as Quasi rightly says, seen as the candidate of big business in Wall Street, but she comprehensively out-fundraised uh, the Republican field and has comprehensively outspent it. So don't think that it's an issue purely of the right or big business, um, that, that that's uh, the case. I mean, money obviously does matter, but I noticed the fact that Jeb Bush outspent the rest of the Republican field pretty substantially to no avail. So, you know, it doesn't get you the whole way, does it? And, and on the other hand, I point out that in the United States, just as in our country, the unions contribute very significantly to political campaigns. So I, as someone who's freedom-minded, welcome the contribution of individuals. And I point out gently that your use of money is part of your free speech. If you curtail your ability to spend money in a way that you like in the course of a political campaign, you are curtailing your freedom to participate in free debate. And I say that in a country which has state-mandated slots for party political broadcasts, which are approved by the state before they can air. So let's not think we've got a unique kind of mandate in this country to talk about, uh, about getting these campaigns right. And I, I welcome individual contributions in, in those things in comparison with the system uh, that we have. Second question about soul-searching. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I mean, I do think that that links back to some of the discussion we, we were having earlier. And words matter. The, the suggestion wasn't just that people in, some people in America are, are interested in the politics of the far right or the KKK. The specific suggestion was that some people in America wanted to return to slavery. Yeah, um, uh, oh, really? I mean, come on. I, not, we, I, I won't have this debate marginalised to the extent that you want to demonise a certain set of people and then have that debate being about it. Um, there, there are some people in, this, in the United States, none of whose ide the ideology none of, none of us take seriously, but they want racial separation. But people don't advocate slavery in your country. And it's a very peculiar thing to want to build that straw man, when we've got so much to talk about, to want to build that straw man and then spend your time knocking it down. Knocking it down. I made one throwaway comment. We're talking about Alex serious racism and you know it. I sat for a great deal of time through remarks I profoundly disagreed with and I had the good manner to sit quietly and listen to them. Um, but presumably, uh, that's why this is called the battle of ideas and not the afternoon tea of ideas. So I, I'll enjoy the rough and tumble uh, and make the point, uh, too, on your point about soul-searching, uh, that uh, in this country, we have got some soul... It's good to be self-critical, of course. It's good to, to try to think about the nature of, of your society. And I think Americans probably do that more than many other uh, countries because they're a new country, they're built on specific written-down ideals and a constitution. They spend quite a, a, a deal of time soul-searching. Um, but I would make the point that in our country, uh, we've spent uh, some significant time recently building up to the situation where liberalism means tolerating other people's views so long as they agree with you. And then to the extent to which they don't agree with you, they, are, they fit into one box or another of bigot, ignorant, liar, racist and so forth. And if, you don't, if that doesn't ring a bell with you, let's just think of one of our most recent debates. Person A, um, we've got to take more people in uh, from Calais. But person B, what, we've got to rescue people from France? Uh, yeah, but they're children. Really? That bloke looks middle-aged to me. Don't be such a terrible uh, racist. No, really, look at him. He looks, he, he, he looks middle-aged. No, that's outrageous. People go through terrible things. You can't possibly suggest we should test them for age. But he, really, look at him. He does look middle-aged. OK, that's the interpreter. Yeah, see, I did tell you he was middle-aged. Shut up, you horrible racist. You know, we are living in an environment where we shut down debate if so, someone dares to disagree with us in our country. And I would rather have rough and tumble up here or in the United States uh, than, uh, than have that kind of pseudo-liberalism shutting things down. And lastly, because it was 
aimed uh, at me. No, I completely disagree. I think removing Saddam Hussein, an evil dictator, was the right thing to do. You don't like it uh, very much as an answer, but better be to be straight, isn't it? Okay, thank you. I'd like to go out to the audience and take any more questions or comments from you. Okay, there's a gentleman down here in the check shirt. In as much as uh, America can be said to have declined, it's surely only in relative terms. That is, it's not that America has grown weaker, but other countries have grown stronger. And so far, we've said nothing about the rise of China. And I wonder whether in the longer term that represents some sort of challenge to American prominence in the world. Uh, China, of course, is still a long way behind in terms of personal wealth, inventiveness, and so on. But with four times the population, uh, is it inevitable that China will resume the place now held by the United States? I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. But isn't um, Donald Trump right when he says the election could well be rigged? We only have to look back to uh, George W. Bush in, uh, was it Florida, uh, against Al Gore when uh, there was talk that it was rigged there? Thank you. As I understand, elections are, are traditionally rigged by the Republicans in the United States. Uh, but, but the point I wanted to make was that I think what Trump is tapping into uh, is a loss of certainty in the constituency uh, that he's addressing, uh, a constituency which thought it knew where it stood in the world uh, and which suddenly finds its own communities uh, pulled apart by loss of employment, um, plagued by drug problems and with traditional family structures breaking down. Um, it seems to me that um, the loss of certainties that they... Uh, are expressing um, can be um, have not been addressed at all by the Democrats and I think that the Democrats get far too good a press on this side of the Atlantic it seems to me that if you look at the way the, uh, the, the, the Democratic politics have drifted towards the politics of interest groups, particular groups minorities uh, and uh, away from what had been a traditional uh, a traditional um, sector that they themselves represented uh, and all very well for Obama to grumble about people clinging to their guns and religion. What's he actually offering to that particular constituency um, other than uh, you know, long debates about whether we should have um, separate lavatories in the House of Congress for, um, for transgender people? I would correct you that the, the Democratic Party have a, have a proud or not so proud tradition of uh, rigging elections in the US South. Um, and in the end, they decided just to disenfranchise African Americans altogether so that they wouldn't have to uh, rig the elections. Um, so, both, <laughs> so both parties um, have that history. Um, do, can I take any more questions or comments? I wanted to address this issue. I know we have a session on this uh, this afternoon on race in America. But I wanted to address this issue um, in terms of race in relation to the um, Trump supporters, because I think um, there is a, um, a misunderstanding in the UK about um, how much things have changed in the US. So you can always find a group of headbanging, um, you know, white racists in a country that is so big as, in, as America. But I think that what that does it, is it underestimates how much things have changed. And it's an insult to the, um, the leg legacy of the civil rights movement. You know, we know, you know, I'm an American citizen. We no longer live in a society where there is state-sanctioned um, discrimination, um, you know, state-sanctioned, -sanc um, um, you know, kind of violence 
um, against uh, black and minority groups, which is not to say that there is not a problem with policing um, in the US, which is, I think, is, is, a, is a separate issue. But the reality is the vast majority of American citizens, whether they're, you know, the white working class um, all the way through to the elites, people are not calling, you know, people do not consider black people to be socially uh, inferior. People recognise that there are different social problems which are complicated and need to be dealt with. But I think to say that, you know, somehow to give this impression that there are all these people in the South that want to go back to the years of slavery, they underestimate how much things have changed politically, how much things have changed in terms of um, civil rights legislation um, uh, in the US. And, you know, what, it, what it's doing, it, you know, it, it's kind of like blaming, um, you know, it has a very, you know, poor opinion of the, average, um, of the average American. I'm not saying that there aren't problems of race in the US. There are. But, we, but in order to solve those problems, we need to recognise that this is not the 1930s, it's not the 1960s, and huge progress, um, you know, has been made in the US on that, okay. on, on that you. issue. Thank you. You've made the point. Uh, can we have this guy here, please? It was mentioned that um, American consumerism became like the American dream almost, and that there's a lack of uh, civic duties. And I, I just want to know, like, how do you define, like, what, what are American civic duties? Like, what should they be doing? And how do you get them to start doing those things? And, like, what would be the result of, of them all doing that? Okay, thank you. I um, would like to invite Sarah to okay. come back to address this question yeah. of Southerners and <laughs> slavery. Exactly. So um, I absolutely concede Alex's point that there are not people calling as such for slavery that I am aware of. I was speaking quickly. I am talking, however, about a sizable portion of uh, America who are indeed, who define themselves around racism and who do want to have, uh, they do want segregation, they do want the return of, they are white supremacists. Now, the, but that is not to dispute anything that you've said either, except for one point that I, that I do disagree with, which I'll come back to. They're not mutually exclusive. We're setting up false binaries here. As you say, it is a very big country. So an enormous amount of progress has indeed been made. We've had a black president for two terms. Um, and he is about to exit with uh, incredibly high levels of popularity. A great deal of progress has been made. It's also worth saying that after two-term black president, it looks as if, knock on acrylic, we are about to have the first woman president, which we haven't yet mentioned, which is incredibly important. So there is absolutely a way of looking at this, um, at this uh, stretch of history that we're in, is to say, you know, if you had said to me 20 years ago, not just within your lifetime, but within a few years, effectively, within a few election cycles, we're going to have a black president twice and then a woman. I would have told you you were out of your mind. It looked to me like it was completely impossible. So not only have we made progress, we are making rapid progress. My own sense is that a lot of the violence that we're seeing and a lot of the screaming from the white supremacists who suddenly kind of, you know, Obama's election pulled them up out of the woodwork. He, he, he seems to have, uh, you know, it, like motivated racists, like it brought them out. They had to fight back against him. And the, it seems to me that what we're looking at is the death throes of that kind of attitude as a political player in American politics. This is what the death rows looks like. It's ugly. It's nasty. It is violent. But they're going. And the, and the, and the arc of history 
is on the side that you're talking about. The one point that I want to dispute, however, is the idea that the policing of black people is a separate issue. At the moment, the policing of black people too often involves murdering them on the street, and I don't think that that is a separate issue from state-sanctioned state violence. It looks an awful lot like state-sanctioned violence when those police officers are not held accountable. They need to be held accountable, and that needs to be addressed, and it is a very real and deep problem. But as I say, it's a false binary to suggest that these two cannot coexist. They do coexist. That's what America looks like right now. Just, just to add in. Okay. In the 1960s, when I was a teenager, and now you know how old I am, in the 1960s, every summer, there were between 20 and 100 race riots, all of them caused by police violence. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't murder. I mean, it's something it was no more than a guy being jacked out of his car in front of a bar and a bunch of people not liking it. That's how the Detroit riots started. Um, and it's, I think it's, all, it's worth thinking about that I despite the, question, the extreme I think violence... the question here, though, is not so much the, the uh, racism, whether there's progress, it's about the, the using a caricature of a racist bigot and, 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 no, no, and no, using I, that I, to I, write I'm, off I'm Trump supporters the, or the people with a different of a political false binary, opinion. Because I have asked myself over the last year and a half, since Ferguson, um, why, why aren't the cities erupting? I mean, there's still plenty of poor people left behind in, in African-American neighborhoods. And I think it's because... It's clear that over the last 40 or 50 years, African-Americans have a larger stake in the society than they did in 1967, two years after the Voting Rights Act had been passed, and before it had begun to take the effect that led to the election of Barack Obama. I just was announcing your point. Yeah, yeah, no, I think we're... Okay, I'd like to bring Alex in. I was going to ask, um, I was listening with interest to Sarah, and I, I wondered um, whether it troubles you that message about if you get a new... Uh, first female president, that one message from that might be, yes, a woman can be president, so long as she's been married to a man who's been president already. <laughs> that also troubles me. Um, it troubles me that that, is the, that that is the system that has been in place for some time. It's true of most of the women who have been in power uh, globally, not all, but many, a great many of them, and there are a couple of important exceptions. Your country has one of the important exceptions. I beg Theresa May's Thank pardon. You. I beg Theresa May's pardon. Um, I keep forgetting because she wasn't elected. I can't get my head around <laughs> the, the system. Um, but also Angela Merkel, a very, very, very important uh, exception. Um, of course, that it, I, I, I deplore that that is the state of play. Um, it is the state of play, and the fact is, is that she has not be, she's not being elected because she was first lady. She has established her bona fides, but did that give her the inroads? Yes, it yeah. did. Obviously, right. it did. Um, so I'm only going to answer one of the questions, and it's, it's to, to agree with our chair's point that uh, the Democrats have a proud uh, history of, of rigging elections, and not just in the South. So um, I elaborate it with, with two points. Uh, in JFK's election in 1960, of course, famously, the dead road in Illinois to march to the polls under Richard Daly's electoral machine to vote uh, for the Democratic ticket. And years later, telling the story against himself, LBJ told the story of going through a graveyard to collect names from headstones to support him in a, uh, yeah, in, in a senatorial race. And, and he saw my a... My um, known for it. Yeah. And, but, Democratic uh, rigged election. And, and, um, <laughs> I'll just finish my anecdote, if that's all right. Um, and uh, L LBJ is with one of his aides, and they're tired, and it's raining, and it's dark, and the aide walks past the headstone, and LBJ says, son, what are you doing? What about that headstone? He says, that's hard to read, and I'm tired, and we've got enough names. And LBJ says, son, that man's got as much right to vote as anyone buried in this graveyard. <laughs>
The, Thank you. The, the, the one critical difference, because we all learn this in, in high school, by the way. This is not part of civics lessons, but we all have a chuckle, and certainly by the time we finish university about all of these stolen elections, is that there, there is a uh, geometrical progression when you're electing the president. And the situation in Florida was very particular because Al Gore, of course, actually won the popular vote. And much of what happened in Florida, and this is, and by the way, I, I blame Al Gore for this. He was advised by his local lawyers in Tallahassee to demand a statewide recount. But it'll take three months. We don't care. There'll be no president. It's okay. You won the state. Because there had been a, a systematic disenfranchisement, not of elderly Jewish voters who couldn't <laughs> pierce the chads, or the vote in, in Miami-Dade, which was interrupted by thugs from the Republican Party, actually hired. It's not an allegation. It's proven. But it was actually African-Americans were disenfranchised because in Florida, it's one of those states where if you serve time in a penitentiary, you are not allowed to vote for the rest of your life. And I met with several people named Johnson, surnamed Johnson, in Tallahassee, who turned up to vote in 2000 and said, you're, you're not on the roll. They'd never been in prison. I met them at a church. They were in the choir. They were honest people. But, you know, Johnson is the most common surname amongst African Americans. And every black guy named Johnson, it seemed, had been struck from the rolls. So that is a very particular case. And because it was the presidency that we're talking about, not necessarily the mayor of Chicago, um, it has, in a, in a very real sense, changed the course of history. Because I, I do think that the, there was a difference between Al Gore and George Bush. Ralph Nader supporters still believe there was none. And I think we would have had a different kind of era that we're living in had the guy who won the popular vote, you know, won the presidency. Okay, but we have this thing called the Electoral College. We're running you know? out of time now. I just want to bring Dolan in, and then I'll ask if you have any more questions. Yeah, I just think it's worth noting on the race question that it's almost impossible to be innocently racist today. In the 19th century, people grew up in, in, in the States in a racist society and, and never really heard anyone say that racism was wrong. So I think that's a very different kind of context. Um, nowadays, um, people who are racist, um, who identify themselves overtly as racist, know that they're countercultural, that you know, they're, they're kicking against the, the mainstream. Um, I, I, I regularly run seminars with American students studying in London, and I noticed among, the, among them incredible sensitivity about race, but not anything I would call um, racism. And some of it has to do with um, stuff like affirmative action. And, you know, in, in any context, people who could complain a lot about affirmative action might be, have a motiv racist motivation. But then they might also have a point. And so there's a, there's a difficulty there with, um, with these questions, people responding to political correctness, um, which goes broadly you know, beyond race and so on. And there's that hypersensitivity about the transgender bathrooms and so on, which is kind of saying, OK, masses of Americans, you're not racist, you're not terribly sexist, you're kind of basically tolerant, but what about transgender? It's like you're trying to catch you out with the next thing that you haven't caught up with. And political correctness has that kind of character, I think, that there's always a cutting edge. Um, rather than celebrating the fact of mainstream views. And I think, you know, with some, something like same-sex marriage um, was kind of happening anyway. Um, but the idea that, you, that the government passes a law to make it a real thing, I think is kind of un-American. It's an idea of, 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 of the state leading the culture, I think, is what a lot of people are reacting against. Um, and, you know, whatever your views on same-sex marriage or, or, or race or whatever, there's an idea that, that you're being led by an elite 
And I think certainly the Trump phenomenon keys into resentment against that. And it's clearly more than a, a, a marginal fringe. And it's not necessarily people who are motivated by, um, by hatred and animus, but who feel like they're being got at um, and looked down on. Okay, that speaks a little bit to the question about identity, but we haven't addressed China. So I, think, I think China is um, very important, and I think it actually feeds into the Trump narrative that we talked about in terms of American greatness. There's clearly a sense in which we've got enemies. And when he talks about Chinese trade, I didn't mention China in the context of trade, which is very, very important because the Chinese are essentially exporting their way to prosperity. Um, and the suspicion from people like Trump and Romney said the same thing, and Clinton said the same thing when he was president was that the Chinese were manipulating their currency. They were deliberately undervaluing their currency in order to, to gain these export markets. And I think that whole trade war, that sort of language, um, has been a, an important part of Trump's offer. And I said that in my opening remarks. Um, and I think that what I would say about race, yes, there have been many strides. But one thing we haven't mentioned at all is the demographic composition of America, which is changing. And it's not just a black-white issue. It's the Hispanic, the growth of the Hispanic vote. And Sarah, I think, very eloquently talked about the death throes. And, it's, and, and I wouldn't just say it's a white versus black kind of ra old racial uh, battle. I think it's about um, a broader American values, a sense of white America being under threat um, you know, from Hispanics, from Asians, from people who look different in, in, in whatever way. And I think Trump is, um, you know, tapping into some of that anxiety. I mean, the gentleman here talked about loss of certainty. And I think this is part of the whole narrative of, 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 of the fact that, you know, if you're a white guy in the Midwest, uh, you know, 40 years ago, you felt that you were part of the winning team, as it were, even if you weren't very wealthy. Whereas now you feel marginalized, you feel looked down on because of political correct correctness. Um, you know, there are lots of Mexicans coming into your, or uh, Hispanics coming into your neighborhood, all that kind of thing. And I think, you know, China and all these race, uh, we haven't talked about, we haven't mentioned the word nationalism. I think there's a, clearly a nationalistic element to this. Uh, people talk about white nationalism in terms of the supremacists. You know, these are all part of the same, the same kind of anxiety. But the uncertainty is about work. It's about gig economy. It's about being laid off for two or three years. And then finding another job because this is America. I think so I don't think it's no, just about work, though. I think it's about culture. It's about lots of things. I, I we've know. got two minutes before I ask you yeah, all to sum up. Yeah, so bring right. that into yeah. your summing up. Um, I'm going to ask just for a last couple of points or, or questions from the audience. Okay, there's a man at the back with his hands straight up. Um, yes, hello. Um, are the panel um, equally satisfied in the level of investment that uh, the American government makes into infrastructure? I'm talking particularly about providing high-quality education for the general public, um, about recognising that the health of the nation is the wealth of the nation, and therefore everything starts with one's physical well-being. And finally, to interconnect the American population so that everybody is, is aware of, of American life in general, to building and improving on the country's transport infrastructure. Are you satisfied with the level of investment that America is making in these areas, please? And sorry, just one point for the chair. There's five minutes left. Thank you. Okay, there's someone down here. I just I couldn't sit here and, and just ask Alex why he stopped at Gordon Brown and go on to David Cameron <laughs> when he mentioned bad <laughs> British prime ministers. Okay, just there. Over there. Uh, thank you. Um, I would just like to ask the panel um, where they think things are going to go in the next sort of four years uh, or four years time where 
I absolutely agree with the the whole reason why this the, the, this debate is titled about um, America being great. I think is very much around the soul searching, and the fact that it has appealed to that particular demographic. If you add in increasing globalization trends, if you add in the rise of China, the rebalance of power, if you add in the trend of robotics and autom and and making huge swathes of that demographic uh, under threat from their jobs. Where do they think it's going to go? Okay, thank you. There's one final point down here or question. Um, someone said that America's not overly sexist. And I just wanted to ask, um, if, why would you still call America not overly sexist if the closest we have ever come to having a woman president, one of the most important positions in America... Um, is when we have two candidates, and not either the not for either of them are very good, and one is considered to be quite racist and stuff like that with Donald Trump. Um, that's my question. Okay, thank you very much. Now I'm going to ask each of the panelists, in the order that they spoke initially, to um, just sum up in one minute. Okay, so Sarah. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, we, we haven't talked about sexism enough. Um, I don't think anybody said that it wasn't overly sexist. I certainly didn't hear anybody say that. That certainly is not my view. I think we are seeing a very sexist campaign. I don't think there's any question about that. But I can't do that in a minute because that would open up a whole lot of things. I think what is happening, part of the death throes that I was talking about are also about this transfer from black a transfer through saying that black people can be in power and women can be in power. And I certainly hope that that's what's happening. Because I only have a minute, I now have to um, move on. And actually, the, the, the question about um, what's going to happen in the next four years is exactly how I wanted to um, wrap this up. There's a real question about how, whether Hillary will just be a one-term president. Um, a lot will depend on what happens with the down-ticket voting that I've already mentioned. There is a, there is a question mark over whether um, there will be a concerted effort to undermine the legitimacy of of uh, her win should she win in a few weeks' time. Um, people are talking about the importance of getting a mandate, and I began with that um, on the basis that it will send a very clear message that we're not tolerating the kind of stuff that Trump has been advocating. But this gets to the central point that um, particularly Quasi has been coming back to again and again and quite rightly, which is that Trump is offering the wrong solutions, but the problems are real. And, and, and the, my concern is that what will happen is that the um, the Democrats in particular, but the, but the political process, people on the Hill, will take uh, a, a sweeping win, a re sweeping rejection of Trump as a sweeping endorsement of the status quo. And they'll think it gives them permission to go back to business as usual. And they'll think, oh, it's all okay now. And I don't actually have to address campaign finance reform. I don't actually have to address the, the, the anger and the violence and the disenfranchisement that has been uncovered. And, and I think that would be a terrible thing for our country. I think they have to take, if the Democrats win any kind of mandate, they have to take this as a very, very clear uh, a statement from the American people that they are being voted in to fix the problems that this election has very, very clearly identified. Thank you. Um, yeah, China, everyone wants to do trade with China. Nobody wants to be China. Um, and as far as I'm aware, nobody's entering a lottery to win a green card to go and live in China and make a new life in China. So there's quite a big difference in, in that respect that America has huge cultural influence. Um, um, and, and a, a huge cultural um, draw to people. That shouldn't be confused with influence by the American government, and that's quite different. But America as, an, as a nation, as a culture, with a short history, does, uh, does inspire still. And I think that's, 
um, that's where hope lies, if there, if there is to be hope. I very much, very much agree that a, a Clinton victory, I fear, will be seen as a vote for the status quo. Effectively, it is a, state, a vote for the status quo. But it's important that Americans look away from politics and, and try, to, try to, to change their society um, else, uh, by other means. So I ended my, in answer to the question that was asked to me, I, I ended my list of bad UK leaders with Gordon Brown who didn't progress to David Cameron because I think history will look back and say Cameron was a pretty good Prime Minister. Unless you think that means I'm too tribal, I, I'm not. Of course, Conservatives produce bad Prime Ministers. Edward Heath was a loathsome man and I'm glad he's dead. Um, <laughs> and it, not, it's not the sort of thing we're supposed to say, but um, th th there we are. Uh, so I'm not particularly overly tribal, but I think Cameron was all right. And now, given that this session seems anxious to find reasons to be depressed and find faults with the American system. Yes, there are bad things about America and American politics. I, I consider in recent times Bill Clinton, a draft-dodging intern botherer, um, beating Bob Dole, a brave hero who'd led his country for many years in the Senate and, and did great service. And then more recently, of course, Barack Obama, who was given a Nobel Prize before he even got to office, uh, beating John McCain, another brave war hero who'd served his country uh, for decades. And I find that all rather depressing. Um, and of course, on the Bill Clinton point, I, I wonder, Gosh, what are the Secret Service going to do with Bill Clinton crashing around the White House with nothing to do if Hillary, uh, if, if Hillary wins? So, of course, there are reasons to be depressed. But don't forget the fundamentals. Essentially, America is still great and always has been. Just quickly, um, yes, education is... It's become part of the culture wars for 40 years. The infrastructure is, is abysmal. When I, w when I entered college, anybody from California could go to the University of California, Berkeley, one of the top ten universities in the world, for free. Now in-state residents are up to $20,000 a year. It's not right. Um, just to say, I, I could summarize in a lot of ways. I'm just going to come back to, to that point. I do think that the insecurity, we cannot overlook the insecurity of the world of work. It is here in this country, it's in my country, it's all over the so-called developed world. And the other thing that I would like to say is that Donald Trump will get approximately 40% of the vote. That is a huge block. It is arguably the biggest single block in the American electorate. It has been there since the passage of the great civil rights acts, of the mid-1960s, it has been developed and exploited by the Republican Party. It is not going to go away over the next four years. No matter what happens down ticket, it will challenge Hillary Clinton. And my great fear, and remember, I think America is great, and I think its power will continue, and it will continue to shape, be the, the main factor for good, believe it or not, in the world. I do believe that at home, this block will continue to gum up the works, and four years from now, we'll be able to have the same conversation, which isn't, to me, a happy thought. Um, what I would say um, in terms of the world of work, I completely agree with that. But in terms of um, the American world of work, and I can't emphasize this enough, the, 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 the two things of illegal immigration and um, outsourcing to China, to Vietnam, to where else, these are things that people are frightened of. Um, in terms of the economy. And these are economic things, but they also feed into a, a cultural sense and, uh, uh, as well. Uh, so there's, you can't really disaggregate culture from, from economics uh, at some level. And the other thing I would say is um, I think that uh, I'm very optimistic, actually, because I think in four years, um, hopefully if they get the growth, I think America will be in a, in a broader place. And the, the last thing I would say to that is that I remember the 2008 election, and I'm a historian, and it's very important if you're a historian to remember what it was like at the time. 
And at the time, until the day of the election, people were talking about the Bradley effect. They say, oh, Obama's ahead in the polls. But because they can never accept a black person, they're lying to pollsters. And in fact, the result was exactly what the pollsters said it would be. Um, so it's very e easy to forget um, where we've moved. I mean, other people, Judge Wood, I don't think he will be assassinated, but I remember Doris Lessing, the writer, saying he will be assassinated if, uh, because they wouldn't be able to accept that. And touch wood, that's not going to happen. Um, he's, he's had two full terms. Um, and so I think it's very, very easy to forget how pessimistic, how uh, downbeat people. He was never going to win. It was never going to happen. America's too racist. And now he's, he's, he's got not only won, but he's got re-elected. And as you say, we, we're looking at potentially at the first female president. These are huge strides in this country. And I think, you know, we, we've got to assume that, you know, the, the, the country will progress, I think, um, you know, with, with bumps uh, to, to a better future. Thank you very much. And I hope you will join me in thanking all of our speakers. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Ideas podcast. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.